0: Well, I am delighted to say that joining us on the Godcast today is uh, Ian Dunt. Now, Ian is the editor of politics.co.uk and he specializes in issues around immigration, civil liberties, democracy, free speech, and social justice. And he appears regularly on the BBC, on Sky and Al Jazeera News, as well as a variety of other radio stations. He also writes lifestyle columns for other publications and website. So Ian, it's really great to have you on board. How are you this afternoon? Not bad, man.
1: I mean, every day is exactly the same as every other day. So I am, as I have been for the last three weeks, sort of in a state of, you know, half, quite enjoyable half-life. You know, you make dinner, it's quite pleasant. We're we're watching a lot of movies, playing a lot of games, but like, yeah, ready for real life to begin once again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Whereabouts in the world are we talking to you from, Ian? Uh, North London. Although, of course,
1: by this stage, it could be anywhere. I mean, mean, it literally could be anywhere at all. Although, The difference is, right, you still have that choice you made to be in London, i.e. to pay more for a smaller place, which even as the most loyal Londoner I can think of, right now doesn't seem like the best choice we ever made. But once COVID is over, it will return to being a decent compromise.
0: Yeah, but you've not always been in North London. I was looking at you on uh, Wikipedia. You've uh, Guatemala and Chile and Winchester and Southampton. Just tell us a bit about that that journey, how you ended up uh, through those places. Right, so I've never lived in Guatemala, it's just my mum's Guatemala. Right.
1: Um, I have no idea what it says on Wikipedia. If it says I've lived in Guatemala, they've been getting overexcited. So my mum's from Guatemala, my dad's from Worthing, kind of a strange combination. Uh, <laughs> and I spent a bunch of time growing up in Winchester um, and also oh, Chile right. where my dad was sent for work. So there's no real connection between the Latin American bit. That's just a coincidence really. Right, okay. And how long um, have you
0: lived in North London? Have you been there a while?
1: Or? Yeah, I've been there a while. And, of course, we go to Guatemala for Christmas and see family and blah, blah. So we know it quite well, but I never got brought up there, which, as much as I love Guatemala, is something that I'm probably, you know, s- s- contented with. Uh, England is probably a nicer place to be brought up than Guatemala certainly a bit more secure.
0: Yeah. And then uh, um, you studied uh, at uni. You did uh, philosophy. Is Wikipedia right on that one? Uh, it is. It is yeah. indeed. Yeah. yeah. This is quite int- okay. Yeah, I'm going to go check out that. Don't page. tell me you've not googled yourself. you must have
1: googled yourself. I, no. I mean, unless th- there comes a point where, unless you want to drive like a, a, a ser- like some utensils into your own face. Googling your name is not necessarily a sensible way for you to be spending your time. So no, it's not. Um, it's not a habit of mine. I have to say.
0: I think I might. I might just make it up next time. Next time I interview somebody and see if anybody denies it. You know, that might be fun. So, um, so you did philosophy at, uh, at uni in, in London. What drew you, what drew you to study philosophy, Ian?
1: Uh, drugs. So I took too many drugs, really, when I was sort of 16, 17 years old. So doing lots of LSD, tryptamine very weird sort of, sort of psychedelic drugs. And you obviously spend a lot of time, you know, thinking, is that table really here? What, what is it to even know? And, you know, you basically have drug chat. And I thought, well, maybe I should study philosophy. And... Um, which was an error, really. I'm not. I wasn't particularly good at philosophy, and it's it's much harder. And drugs. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually quite good at taking drugs, much much better than I was at studying philosophy, um, which is really quite rigorous uh, and dry, and none of the things that I thought it would be at sort of 3am sat in a mate's house. So yeah. th- it was a sort of a mistake. And um, the good thing that came from it was, uh, was logic, really, studying logic. And that's the part that really did come in useful for my later career and, and for writing and just for the manner in which you think about the world. But I found, honestly, studying things like metaphysics and sort of epistemology quite taxing and, and quite tedious. I'm very glad that somebody does them. Mm. I just don't want to be that person myself.
0: Yeah. And um, was religion uh, any part of your upbringing or, or not?
1: A little bit. Um, so the Guatemalan part starts coming in there again, actually. Because I mean, in Guatemala, obviously, uh, the Catholic Church was really involved with liberation theology. So for my mum, who was quite a left wing figure, uh, the Catholic Church always had a very different image to, I think, the one it has in Europe. Where growing up around that time, you know, lots of issues around abortion and divorce and you know, things like that. It seen as this quite conservative reactionary force. When I was growing up, the Catholic Church was seen as um, on the side of the left. And on the side of fighting against fascism, particularly in Guatemala, but of course in, in countries across Latin America. Um, I didn't really have any religious feelings at all until I was about sort of thirteen. And to, to drugs. <laughs> <And to laughs> like drugs. Yeah, that was on the ta- that was on the tail <laughs> end. Um, uh, I think I was about I was about thirteen, right? And I went to a Christian camp, and they did a real number on me. I mean. I, you know, they're, they're very good at what they do in that place, which was to basically turn 13 year olds into evangelical Christians. <laughs> and they really did it. So for about two or three years, I went full on and not, and not really in a good way. I was very judgmental. I was, I remember seeing, saying dreadful that, you know, I think I, I could, I can remember having an argument with friends of my parents or sort of saying, you know, anyone that doesn't believe in God, you know, it's obviously going to burn in eternal hell forever. And so stuff that I think, like, my my God, where, where did that come from? Um, and that sort of phased out and really was replaced by Marxism when I was about 17, 16, 17 years old. Uh, quite an easy transition, actually, from <laughs> evangelical Christianity to Marxism. And I, I did it very swiftly.
0: Yeah, that's really, you know, I, I, there's a raging debate about to erupt in the church, I think, around um particularly conservative evangelicalism and this whole review of the church and weddings and stuff. I'll come back to that if we have time, but um, weddings and same-sex relationships I'm talking about. But just, mm-hmm. just sticking with you in at the moment, your, your uh, interest in politics began when and where? Can you remember where you actually started taking an interest when it moved on? No, no, that was forever. I... I w-
1: I can't remember that any more than I can remember sort of when I first watched TV, really. I mean, that was just, you know, a subject that was always being discussed, that was always considered important, um, where you were expected to have opinions that you could justify yourself with. And where, you know, my, my parents were were pretty comfortably off, but there was... and. So mum's quite left wing my dad's my dad is like a classic centrist dad. I mean you could you would almost find him in the dictionary next to that term you know once, you know social responsibility but you know you can't mess with the economy he's like a classic bear, right basically um and even with those two political points of view, the overriding thing that I remember having was just this sense of that it did matter what went on in society like it did matter that people were taken care of. it was never just this idea of you vote according to what's best for you mm. the idea would you think about what's right in general in the country and that was one of the most common themes i remember from my childhood which is essentially another way of saying that politics matters and that you should care about the people around you And that basic sort of currency w- was pretty much always there for me
0: can you remember the the first kind of big political thing that really you know uh, got the hairs stand up on the back of your neck or you know for me it was the minor strike uh as a kid you know mm-hmm. that that really kind of got me you know transfixed on the television it just it was incredible viewing I didn't I'm not sure how much I understood of it at the time but can you remember that something similar to you for you or I mean your answer's better and
1: I wish I had that answer mine is it was it was fox hunting which I don't really talk much about animal rights now but for whatever reason as a kid I remember there was were they called the Animal Liberation Front or something like that? They were basically the Fox Hunt Saboteur yeah, guy. were. And I
0: think, so. think they've right?
1: yeah. they, been arrested. I think as a child, I just thought this, this is essentially a sort of Disney level of political analysis. But it's just like, <laughs> Fox is nice. They're trying to save the fox. Why on earth would anyone, you know, with a big bad state come along and try to stop them? But I do remember being passionately upset by that. At, at a pretty young age, yeah. I much prefer your minor strike explanation and I frankly <laughs> wish that that was true for me, but it didn't.
0: Oh, well, Um now not, This is my first proper question. All those others were kind of just forerunners to the big, <laughs> big kitchen stuff. Now you tell me, that's great. <laughs> well, I, I, I just want you to help me, right? I'm, it's quite a long question, so stick with it. So I've written it down, it's that long. So, and, and the question is about identity and um, about what we are, or what we think we are. So in the church, for example, um, one of the most common things I'm asked is what am I? Um, So, uh, you know, people want to know, am I high church? Am I low church? Am I evangelical? Am I conservative evangelical? Am I Catholic? Am I liberal? Am I, all this. Um, And when I throw in the political conundrum to that, it just makes it all even more confusing. Am I left wing? Am I right wing? Am I a Tory? Am I Labour? Liberal? And then to make it even more difficult, um, I interviewed Giles Fraser. I'm sure you will know. Um, sure, sure. And uh, he learned. I learned that he identifies as um, a socialist Tory. And I mm. and I thought, hmm, well, I I like that. I think I might be a bit of that. Um, so my question is, do you think there are millions of people out there who, who like me, don't really know? What they are or actually, what they are politically, and 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 why do you think that might be? Is it just got a bit crackers?
1: I think for most people they don't think in the abstract or with isms, but you can find instincts in them. Don't don't you find like I, I find that with people who don't consider themselves political, I nevertheless find a kind of psychological instinct towards, for instance, tolerance. From people who can be quite, I'm not saying they're saintly, but, you know, they can be quite mean, they can be quite right-wing in lots of ways, but they're instinctively kind of live and let be, and and others who are instinctively quite like, they they need the certainty of a clear-cut answer with the idea that other people will be sort of forced to submit to it as well. So I do think you find instincts. I think it's also true that lots of our categories are ineffective. So we take left-right, for instance. Yeah. Like left-right is really useful for a very specific thing. and I think this speaks to your sort of socialist Toryism idea. Like it's really useful for us to talk about the distribution of resources. It's really interesting as a material question. You know, do you, do you get to keep, I'm simplifying quite a bit right now, but do you get to keep all your stuff or is there a social responsibility that the stuff gets reallocated, you know, so there's greater sort of equality mm-hmm. of opportunity at least? And that is a useful criteria, like a useful moral criteria, useful way of think about politics. It doesn't really speak to lots of questions around sort of political power, to questions around identity. Those, and the fact that we use left-right as these sort of great big blobs, I think, becomes quite unhelpful in that respect. So that, And even if we look at the sort of left-right on the one hand and authoritarian, sort of liberal or libertarian on the other axis, I don't think that encapsulates the full range of ideas that's going on either. The thing is, we do need names for things, you know, it's, people like to, you know, they, they attack, even in the music industry, right, they were like, well, Britpop was something, you know, that record labels came up with. Well, yeah, because people need names for stuff. That's how we sort of sort it out in our head. And it's natural that more and more names come along and people work their way through it. Most people can't be defined by one single name in politics. And you'd usually have to be quite a rudimentary sort of intellect, I think, to be, to be comfortable with that designation. And the kind of people that are, are usually the kind that I'm quite uncomfortable with. I don't think yeah. I've answered your question, but I've sort of shambled around it for a yeah, while. Yeah, no,
0: it's, it's helpful. But do you think that, to what extent now, do you think that, that politics is about personality rather than actually politics? You know, uh...
1: Surely less so than before, I would have thought. I mean, if you, look, if you take when we had Tony Blair, right, Tony Blair was really very driven by personality. And, and for a long period, there really wasn't that much of a difference between the two main parties um, on many policy issues. I mean, partly because Tony Blair had moved towards the right on economic terms. Um, he was redistributing in the background. Right. But he was fundamentally accepting, you know, states to stay out the market in terms of the market's function. Um, And the Conservatives were slowly but surely going over to a more liberal position on social issues. And their sort of personality became more important because the policy differences weren't there. I mean, now, whatever else we think about, um, you know, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, at the last election, people had a more significant policy choice to make than they had had for for a really long time. And also, I would add to that, for a while before that, you had Theresa May versus Jeremy Corbyn. Now, neither of these people have a personality in, in any real sense. You know, so there wasn't anything really strong to latch on to there. So actually, I think now, to be honest, I think politics and policies are more important now than they have been for some time. And the age where personality was really ascendant, you know, in the late 90s, early noughties, that seems to be slightly fading away.
0: Yeah. So what, what so uh, Boris's landslide victory almost a year ago, what, what was that? Was that policy or was that personality or was it just Corbyn?
1: I think that comes down to, yeah, I mean, look, A, you can't discount the Corbyn thing, but the Corbyn thing is part of a broader picture, right, where you essentially had um, a singular debate deciding the election, which is Brexit. But Brexit, of course, is a sort of wedge issue for all sorts of cultural assumptions and visions of what you want the country to look like. And you had the ability electorally to consolidate one side of that, the Leave side. And on the Remain side, you had a split, a very severe split, obviously, between, you know, the SNP, Labour, Lib Dems, within parties like Labour. And then you had a further split because Corbyn himself was so divisive on the left. Because, for, you know, for many of us on the left, it was very hard to vote for this guy, especially because of allegations of anti-Semitism, but also more broadly on the basis of just competence. We're just thinking, mm-hmm. could you do this job? <laughs> Which, admittedly, in a fair world, would also be applied to Boris Johnson. Something he's now demonstrating: he literally cannot do the job right
0: now. Well, um, so and let, let me ask you on that because I, I chatted to Ian Dale on LBC about this, mm. and and I was talking about you know whether you know whether we we chuck mud at these people Trump or Boris, they they have a very successful. Well, you know, he 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 absolutely smashed the election, didn't he? And Trump did last time round. And I suppose, you know, there must, within this kind of spitting image kind of madness that we chuck at them, there must be some genius as well for them to be so appealing, isn't it, is it there? Or, or am I wrong? I
1: think genius is generous. <laughs> like, but OK, let's not, but let's not take it away that Cummings and Johnson won the election. And they did it deploying a very specific strategy, the outlines of which I've just sort of outlined to you. you know, I, I think that there is a distinction between winning elections and governing. And what we're seeing now with government is quite unimpressive. And I say that not really as a sort of long term critic of Boris Johnson, but really as I think a pretty fair encapsulation of where the current consensus is, even among sort of many on the centre right and in fact, many in the Conservative Party.
0: Yeah.
1: And part of that comes down to, are you listening? And now not everyone is of this disposition, right? Like when Michael Gove was um, at the MOJ, He came up with some decisions that you might not agree with, but he sat down at the beginning and listened to the widest possible range of voices around him, penal reform campaigners, people who wanted to toughen up, lots of different groups, then came to a decision and proceeded. The way this government operates and the way that the Trump government operated is actually on the basis of creating its own echo chamber. So most critical voices are considered an enemy combatant, whether they're in the civil service or they're in the courts or they're in the newspaper columns. And one of the things that does, quite apart from any moral concern is it makes it much harder for you to pursue a practical reality of how to govern. This is one of the things that Karl Popper used to work on that I think is one of the most effective arguments for liberalism, which is essentially, if you are going to deploy your policy successfully, you need to be open to listening to people who will tell you how it might go wrong. If you treat them as the enemy, rather than a critical voice, you're going to turn out to be very bad at deploying the policy
0: that you anyway want to pursue. Yeah. Well, We'll come to liberalism in a moment. i will just turn our attentions to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and um, I just would like your opinion because he was kind of, you know, suspended, wasn't he? Um, and he's back in, and it reminded me a little bit of um, my cat because my cat occasionally brings a mouse in that's not quite finished off. And no,
1: I'm sorry to hear that. That's a little...
0: sometimes you've got to put the, you know, the mouse out out of its misery, kind of thing. Where where's Keir Starmer going with this? <laughs> What's the end game? Can I just say that, I've talked about this subject a lot, and that is, by distance,
1: the best metaphor I've heard to describe the situation that we're in. Um, so look, I think, fundamentally, the argument that we're getting from the Labour leadership at the moment doesn't make sense to me. It's that we're trying to clear the cases through the existing internal dispute system, the internal disciplinary system, which we have already accepted is not fit for purpose. And then in the new year, we'll bring in the new system. And you sort of think, the problem there is that you're you're still proceeding with the system. Now, they suggest that they don't have the power to stop it. In which case, I think there needs to be a guarantee to say, well, we will again pursue these cases when the proper system is in place. But at the moment, I think, I don't want to be too stern on it because it's a very difficult situation. And any leader who is faced with a situation where they're being told the problem was the leader interfering in the process, it's actually quite constraining because it's very hard for you to do anything from that point on because you're then doing exactly what you're criticised, what you promised not to do before. However, it hasn't been a great moment for Keir Starmer so far and he is stuck right now in a bit of a halfway house where you're pleasing no one as opposed to everyone. And mm. um, That situation will improve, I think, in probably February. But for the time being, he, he's kind of stuck between gears.
0: Do you, do you think there's enough... Uh... Strength in the Corbyn camp still to make things pretty tricky? Um, well, they can make
1: things tricky. I mean, they're doing it now. I mean, the membership's leaving, they're causing an awful lot of noise online um, and they have the potential to convince lots of the pro-Corbyn people who accepted what they saw at the end of 2019 and thought, look, we need a different way to approach this if we're ever going to get into government. That's the case. Mm. However, it is the case that, you know, it doesn't do here some that much harm to be engaged in a battle with a part of the party that was really comprehensively rejected by the voters. You do have to show to voters, we have heard the message, we're going to try something else. And Mm. on that basis, the battle could actually, in the end, be quite useful for some of it. The thing is, he's got to win it. And at the moment, he's stuck in this situation where he really can't interfere in these processes. He doesn't have the autonomy within that battle in order to be able to secure the victory. So if, if I was him, I'd be a bit nervous about it, but ultimately it is a battle that needs to be won. Um, and if anyone can do it, it probably will be him.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> just just before I came to interview Ian, I was making myself a brew and my daughter is in there doing some baking. She said, are you interviewing next to me? Interviewing this um, chap called Ian Dunn. Well, what is he? I said, oh, he's. Uh, I think he's a liberal. And she went, oh, there's not many of them left. Um, <laughs> also,
1: I love, I think he's a liberal. I just wrote a book called How to Be a Liberal. And I love that you're like,
0: oh, I think he's a liberal. So yeah, I feel confident with that label, I can take it. But, but I actually, you know, that I, I mean, I, I had to look, I just had to look up online who the leader was because I'd forgotten. And I can't think of any... You know, I, you know I'm, I'm from a generation when, when David Steele and Paddy Ashdown, they, had, yeah, yeah. they were a strong voice. What's happened to the Liberal Party?
1: For a start, there's a difference between Big L Liberal and Small L Liberal, right? Just like Big C Conservative. Yeah. And I'm a Small L Liberal. I'm not a Big L Liberal. I vote for them sometimes. I don't vote for them all the time by any means, and I'm not a party member, and I don't consider myself a supporter. And especially right now, to be honest, I'm like, I don't really get what you're doing. Um. So no, they're having problems. I, I don't think that the problems that they're having right now electorally are the same as the problems that liberalism is having as a philosophy, okay. right? I mean, that really, you should be in a position as the Liberal Democrats to pick up a lot of support by the fact that liberals feel on the back foot and feel attacked. If you look, for instance, you don't have to win a battle, right, if you look at those huge marches uh, for the EU during the Brexit debate in, in London and other towns. Now, we never saw marches for Europe of that size before, right? You don't need to be winning overall in order to amass a tremendous amount of support. So liberal Democrats should be able to do quite well out of a resistance movement against populism, against nationalism. At the moment, they seem quite confused. And I think a lot of that comes from having learned the wrong lessons from what happened under the previous leadership. And by being slightly wrong-footed by the fact that Keir Starmer's leader of the Labour Party. Ultimately, if you're the Lib Dems, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's quite a good thing to happen to you because it means that lots of people who are generally progressive, generally sort of left liberal, can't vote Labour. So they will find another home with you. Keir Starmer is acceptable to, I mean, realistically, probably about ninety percent of Liberal Democrat voters. And on that basis, you have a serious problem if you're yeah. Lib Dem leader.
0: Mm, yeah. Okay. Thanks. I'm just uh, time's whizzing on. I'm really uh, finding your interest. Your answers very interesting. Ian, can I? I just want to ask about church, if I can. Um, uh, do you think that there's that, um, still a place for church in politics and, and particularly, you know, I'm a Church of England vicar, so particularly the, the state church or uh, do you think the voice, is, the voice of the church has been fundamentally lost? No, I think there is a role for the church in politics and I'm always
1: a bit baffled by it. Whenever, I know, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury says something and then you always get, it's usually people on the right, funnily enough, um, sort of coming out and going, well, they, they have no role. Thing. Absolutely not. Like the, I mean, As I was saying earlier my mum was brought up with Catholic priests standing by the poor against fascism in Latin America. Mm. There is a voice for religion and politics. And in fact, lots of my work with refugees, with immigrant groups, it's church groups that provide the most help to people that otherwise don't get thought about very much. So there absolutely is a voice. And an awful lot of the time, I disagree with what that voice is is saying, (laughs) really quite strongly, as you might imagine. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a role for having a voice.
0: Just unpack and a bit more, like, Ian. Just unpack that a bit more. You say, what what is it you're disagreeing with? What you
1: mean that I hear from religious figures? Yeah. I mean a tremendous amount. So I mean, if, you know, over the years, on anything around abortion, on anything to do with you know birth control, very often with women's rights, um, divorce. I mean, I could go, I could go on and on. But I mean, fundamentally, if if your position in politics, as mine is, is you know stay out of my stuff. You know, everyone has a sphere of freedom that should be maximized to the highest possible avenue until it interferes with someone else's. You will obviously take exception towards anyone coming up with a moral lesson, especially to do with how people live their lives that says that they have any kind of basis upon which to stop you from expressing your own autonomy and sense of self-creation. So very often, I disagree with what I'm hearing, Um, but the, the right to do it, and not only just the right, but there is something to hear from religion. Um, that is of value in itself I think it's particularly around ideas around community and belonging and providing something that I think in the secular world we find really hard to provide for people um, yeah so it would be it would be completely bizarre also by the way it would be unrealistic because the reality is in the world I mean arguably not so much in this country but in the world most people do consider themselves religious so if we were to go into a situation where we're going to say well politics won't have any, any involvement from the church just think like well that doesn't that, you're not yeah. going to find a lot of popular support for that
0: yeah I just worry sometimes because um, I do I worry about things um, that <laughs> some of those things that you talked about uh, is not the general is the view of many Christians and particularly in the Roman Catholic Church of which I'm not a part but there are mer- much more moderate uh, of course liberal thinking Christians um and you know I've, I understand talking to a few people that there are there are are an awful lot of christians actually in westminster um and they they meet together and they uh, they pray together across uh, party uh, morning prayers and things but i was always struck by tim farron who who left the the leadership of the liberal party because of which was fundamentally of his his christian position now um i just think that um there seems to be this unwritten rule now in, in westminster that You can be a Christian, but don't you dare bring it into the political domain. I was just wondering what you thought about that. See, I don't, that wasn't the lesson that I took from Farron.
1: Um, I think probably like you, I felt quite uncomfortable with, I think it was in the end, it was a BBC interview, I think, or it could have been a Channel 4 one, where I I did sort of feel like he was being asked in the end to sort of renounce his faith. (laughs) I mean, really, to, to, to at least go against what clearly was his conviction. Um, To me, what mattered with Farron is, what's your voting record? And his voting record on the issue, on on, um, gay relationships, was, was strong. I mean, it wasn't perfect. There was a few times he'd abstained, but it was strong. And to me, liberalism isn't about what you think is right for other people's lives. It's about ensuring that they have the freedom to live those lives, regardless of your conviction about it. And I thought that he had abided by that just about, but I thought he'd abided by it. The trouble that he found was twofold really. The first one is you're in the Liberal Democrats and the instincts of that party are gonna be very, very different to where you are in terms of what you think is right. Now that's not an insurmountable obstacle, but when he came into that leadership position, um, he really did sell himself as someone who could communicate. and the fact that you had this really basic problem that people were aware of from quite early on and he'd failed to communicate his way out of it and it then impacted on him in the middle of a general election campaign, mm. raised the pragmatic problem with his leadership that was completely disconnected from the centrality of the issue itself. So there were issues there, but I, I, I'm kind of with you that, that that moment where it did feel a bit like he was being asked to renounce was uncomfortable and that ultimately his record was more respectable than people made out.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in terms he's of a decent,
1: uh, he's also a decent guy for his
0: work yeah, like, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. I, I um he, he led a he, he was a key speaker at uh, our diocesan conference a few years ago and i went to a whiskey tasting session with him which was much fun um yeah. and he does like pretty. a good single malt but um just um going back to church um, there's going to be this big thing come up in the next year or two uh, that started the conversation now about same-sex relationships and marriage in church uh, and this is, I'll tell you now, Ian, this is going to, this is going to cause some problems in the church, but um, do you, I mean, I, I'm guessing you'd just say, well, yeah, let's just let, let gay people get married, but how, how can you debate that without it getting all out of, you know, all getting horrible and nasty, is it possible, or button mm-hmm. we'll batten down the hatches until it passes, uh, you know, I, I feel really strongly about this subject, and and, uh, you know, I have a, I have an LGBT uh, curate with me who's a tra- trainee vicar. And, um, you know, it's already getting quite nasty in the media. And i just wondering what your thoughts were. If you I mean, it, it may not be of interest, but uh, what have you got to say?
1: Yeah, and um, obviously, yeah, my political views on this are exactly what you would expect, which is people should be able to get married to whoever the hell they want. And um, I, I found, like, during the Brexit debate, that which was awful and tribal and really toxic, right, which I'm taking as a bearing for what you're facing over the next sort of period, is the best you can do for yourself is just basically to go back to like classic John Stuart Mill, Harriet Taylor liberalism, which is to think I will not think the worst of my opponent. Like, I won't go into it thinking of them as a caricature of, of my worst prejudices about them. I will assume in good faith that they're coming from a decent place, that they truly have their conviction mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and that they're not motivated by bad sentiment. And I think that gets you a lot of the way. Another part is um, they put it as you have to open yourself up to the strongest counter argument. is not to, you know, the thing you see online a lot is people will take the worst thing that someone on another and the weakest argument that someone on the other side of a debate says and try to define them by virtue of that. The other way is to say, well, you know, we take the strongest argument and approach that. And that is not only more fair to them. Um, it's also, frankly, if you want to win a debate, the best way to win it, you know, again, again, go back to Karl Popper. He said, if you keep on attacking the weak argument, it's sort of like um, it, it's <laughs> it's like a virus. It keeps on evolving. The, the, the opponent system keeps on evolving, catering for the points that you make. If you challenge at the root, if you challenge the strongest possible case. You do a service to your opponent, but also you have the strongest chance of of success. The other, then, the third part, again, this just comes from John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor, is to have humility and is to have, so the the confidence to challenge the strongest argument, but the humility to recognize that there is, truth isn't held in one place. That truth um, exists. Truth exists. None of this postmodernist stuff, you know, it, it cannot be attained, it exists. But it's there's slices of it all over the place and you can talk to someone who is just catastrophically wrong about all sorts of things but find a sliver of truth and i mean i have actually spoken to human beings where i genuinely doubt that that could possibly be true but nonetheless if you go into arguments i find thinking that then it does tend to make you a more generous soft it tends to just soften away some of those edges of these really difficult sort of debates so I, I suppose yeah after four years of, of the brexit thing which hasn't been the most pleasant <laughs> experience of my life i guess that that would be all i'd have to offer through.
0: yeah and just um looking at that they're uh, picking the crumbs from under the table of brexit um I j- nigel farage um i'm just wondering what you think whether he might be a case study for future politicians and academics um or whether he'll be seen as a uh, something much different well, he's—I mean, he,
1: you know he's, hes arguably the most successful politician of our lifetime, um, and the fact that that's true is a tragedy for this country. Um, but there's no other real way of looking at it. I mean, he takes fringe issues without any success in Parliament and knows how to use them to get the governing party, to get the sort of parliamentary centre-right party, to adopt ever more extreme positions on things like immigration, things on Europe, and now seemingly on, and arguably most damagingly, on coronavirus, potentially. And so he will be a case study in how you can do that within a first-past-the-post system, a non-coalition system, actually, weirdly, as a small party, create more political change in your direction than you would otherwise have seen. I think one of the things, and going back to that conversation about where are the Lib Dems right now, is that the Lib Dems could also do that kind of thing, base themselves on, this is on the liberal left, of making sure that you drive other parties and bigger parties towards a more robust expression of their values. So far on the liberal left, we haven't done that. It's Nigel Farage that has really shown how that stuff is done. So I would say fair play to him, but I'm just not a big enough man to do that because I think he has absolutely one of the most poisonous influences on our politics and yet, unfortunately, also the most influential.
0: Hmm. Just a a couple other bits, uh, Ian, I've really enjoyed this, but just, um, you know, in Burnley, where we are, um, this was for most of my adult, my young life and adult life was um, a Labour stronghold, incredible, huge majority, Um, it's now a conservative stronghold. Do you, do you think this is a, a, a one term kind of situation? Do you, do you think people will go back or, or they wait? Uh, you know, is the jury out on, on Boris and we'll wait and see what happens?
1: It's too early to tell yet. Um, what we can say is that it can change. Like this, th- this idea of somehow some kind of manifest destiny that the, these seats are going to stay Tory is just completely wrong. But what we have to show, sorry, I'm not trying to speak for you, but for people like myself and the liberal left, We have to show that you can offer people more control over their lives, that it's not just the market deciding everything, that actually the state will interfere to help with people's lives. You have to show a a, a sense of patriotism. You know, you cannot just run to be running a country that it doesn't look like you actually like very much. That has to be one of the central lessons that we take from Corbynism and that patriotism is not something that is owned by the right. is owned by people as well, who love their country. If they're liberals, if they're on the left, and that in fact, people who desire freedom for all are best placed to express patriotism because they do not ask for you all to be homogenous within that national category. Like these lessons have to be taken on. It's only by taking them on, coming up with practical solutions for improving people's lives and speaking to them about a sense of belonging and identity two things that have been sort of absent on the liberal left for decades now that we can actually address this slow change towards the other side, because that didn't start with Boris Johnson in 2019. That has been going on since Tony Blair was in charge, this gradual decline in these seats. It can be arrested and it can
0: be stopped, but we have to see what is happening and address it. Mm. Yeah, great. Uh, Ian, uh, last big political question. I I want to ask you about uh, food banks, if I may. We, uh, We started a food bank, Um, at the beginning of the COVID crisis, and um, I can't tell you the effect it's had on me personally, it's been quite profound. Um, It's hard, um, it's distressing, um, and quite often people want to support the food bank, and they do, but some people say, well, I'm not sure I believe in food banks. Um, And one of the key questions I get get asked is, uh, what is the end game with a food bank and, I can't answer that. It's one of those things I just can't answer. And um, just asking, with your political experience and wisdom, is there an end for food banks, or, or has this become a normal part of society now? I don't really get. The, so you don't mean individual food banks. You mean
1: as a system? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. I, think, I mean the end. Which are by... Really the end is just that they cease to exist, right? I mean, there is no vision of a good society in which food banks are necessary. Um, But I don't find that so... I mean, isn't, for instance, like, the end goal of every charity is to cease to exist. I mean, I'm not suggesting all of them feel that way. Some of them become so large and self-perpetuating that 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 may not be something they're thinking of on a day-to-day basis. But Amnesty International, for instance, or Oxfam, for instance, should want to cease to be necessary. But while the world is imperfect, you keep especially a safety net for the very poorest people within it right now the fact that they exist is just a it's just a blight on our entire political system and fact, to see them presented sometimes as some some sort of manifestation of david cameron's big society to me just seems completely obscene there should be no world in which these things are necessary i mean thank you very much for running it I very much hope that in 10 years time, we won't be having this conversation, that there'll be no requirement for having it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know at this stage. I can't, I can't see an in-game at the moment. We've started it and uh, it's extraordinary. It's through the roof and, you know, um, and not people who you would ordinarily perhaps associate with, with a food bank. Lots of people from, you know, the the rural villages to people who've lost work and things. So yeah is it much worse since covid yeah and it's much worse this lockdown than the last one much mm. worse yeah it's, it's huge but there we are um you know i have to ask the standard question which i almost forgot was have, have you been to burnley no sorry Why not? i'm very ready oh. london. <laughs> you in that bubble are you you're in that bubble, in I,
1: bubble. bubble.
0: I mean I, I don't really like
1: leaving london and I, I don't really have any shame about it either. Like I know London gets a lot of state, but London's my home. I love this place. Yeah, I love it very much. So I, I very rarely leave it or wish to. Sometimes I, I have that, to visit family, yeah. but I find that dreadful as well.
0: I was born in London, and my dad brought us up here when I was a little boy. And uh, we we took the kids down at half term in February. I think it was our last trip before lockdown. And it is a. I mean, I absolutely loved it. But but it is such a busy place, isn't it? It's it's mad busy down there. It was like, I'm going down to the underground. I couldn't believe it. It was like, whoa. I
1: think that there's also, you know what the funny thing is, is that I think that the reason that a lot of people don't like London is because it is a different experience when you're visiting to when you live here, right? Like, you obviously, it's full of people. It's, there's a rush, and there's the anonymity. But I find the anonymity extremely liberating. But then also, within your area and within your way of knowing London, you do find a lot of friendliness and a lot of community. But that's the thing that you get... Once you're sort of rooted into it, you know, like, I mean, if you come down for the, you know, tourists come for a day and they're like, oh, there's no sense of community. It's like, well, you, you know, that, that, you're not going to see that in the same way that I didn't get the sense of community when I'm visiting you know, Barcelona or I don't know, something like that. So it is, I, I, I always think that there is kind of two different bits to London. There's the, the London for Londoners and there's the London that you see if you're just visiting. Um, but it's not quite as cold and as anonymous as people make out, although it can be as anonymous as you want it to be, which... I rather enjoy that anonymity is another word for freedom. Really.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great, Ian. Just one last question: when you're not when you're not uh, doing politics, uh, don't, please don't say drugs. Uh, what What do you like to do to kind of wind down and chill out? <laughs> uh, you know, good food, good wine,
1: good company—the standard man. I'm not particularly interesting just a really bog standard, high quality things in life. But what is, but nothing's better than it was, that, right? It, like, was quite say, dull,
0: it was quite a dull answer, but it was, it was quite a dull question as well, so.
1: <laughs> it's not a dull question at all. But like ultimately, yeah, I, and it is a boring answer, but ultimately, you know, when you're on your deathbed, the, the last thing you're going to say is, I wish I'd drunk less good wine with crapper food with worse people. Ultimately, the way you want to go is to surround yourself with wonderful people and drink fine wine. And yeah. That something that at least of my very few qualities I'm quite good at doing.
0: Uh, my wish when I'm on my deathbed is that I can, I can recite the immortal words of Spike Milligan, which was, I, I told you I was ill. That's Ian, it's been really lovely chatting to you and, and it's been great. It's, some of the stuff you've said is, I'm, I'm going to have to watch it back, it's that good, just to pick just, uh, on some of those key things you said about uh, liberalism and things like that. So, Ian, it's been wonderful. Thanks for your time. And... Uh, If you ever want to come up to Burnley, you know where we are. Well, you might not do, actually. But we're M6. (laughs) M6 I'm definitely popping on you. (laughs) Popping for a brew. But for (laughs) now, Ian, thanks very much and God bless. Thanks for having me, Alex. Cheers.